Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with episode 432 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of AEW and NXT. AEW still a far way out from its next pay-per-view, Double or Nothing NXT though, quickly building to a spring break-in television special coming next week on Tuesday night and then still building from there for NXT Battleground about a month away. As you can tell, plenty to discuss on today's episode. We're not gonna waste any damn time getting into it, so allow the Silver King to start with a reminder that this podcast is all about the five. So please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. You can leave a five-star written review. And if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, don't forget you can support the Getting Over Wrestling podcast and become an official Getting Overhead by remembering a simple mantra. I happen to love the number... Five. You can go over to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You can also find the link in our Twitter bio at getting overcast. Become an official getting overhead, get exclusive audio posts, interaction, and a lot more all through buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. The membership is growing rapidly. We love giving you guys those news posts, the extra episodes. We're breaking some news over there as well. Every reason in the world to join us and become an official getting overhead. One more time buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And lastly, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, and so much more throughout the entire week. Once again on Twitter at getting overcast. Now, as it is the AEW and NXT show, we have both brands to discuss, and we're going to do that starting right now. We are going to open up with NXT this week just because we actually have a lot to discuss with AEW, so that's going to be the second half of the show. As always, there are timestamps in the episode description, so all you need to do if you want to jump around, whether because you only watch or follow one brand or the other, just find the timestamps in the episode description, and you can move to that section of the show. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire thing. So as I said, we're kicking off with NXT, and I wanted to say this before we actually get into Tuesday night's show. You know, NXT is not for everyone these days, and there are developments in NXT that annoy me each week, as you guys frequently hear when I break it down. But I gotta say, Shawn Michaels is probably doing the best job of booking consistently pleasing, entertaining wrestling on a weekly basis. Like sure, the quality differs per episode as it will with any program, be it wrestling or otherwise, but never by a drastic margin. There's almost never a terrible episode of NXT. Plans don't change usually unless injuries occur. The storytelling makes sense, even if it's not to your taste. And I just finished watching NXT on Tuesdays without the frustrations, unlike how I sometimes feel watching other shows, be it AEW or WWE main roster. So credit to HBK and the creative team over there for what they're doing in the Performance Center. They are developing talent. They're not only getting them ready for the main roster, they're consistently improving the work that they're doing on NXT, which is really the entire point of development, but you can see it happen on a week-to-week basis, and that was very clear on this Tuesday's edition of NXT. 
So let's get started with the main event. It was the Grayson Waller effect show with Carmelo Hayes as the guest. Backstage earlier in the night, Waller was excited that Melo would be his guest while kind of reiterating in a purposefully annoying American accent that the unsanctioned match loss against Johnny Gargano did not count. He also had a gold boot ready for a shoey for when he wins the title. Now, like I said, this was the final segment of the show. Melo gave Waller credit for getting into the main event despite always losing. Waller said he's as big a star without the title as Melo is with one. Melo said Grayson's not that guy. And then he went to show off all of his accolades on the big screen, only to reveal he actually has none. This got heated with Waller saying Melo can call up MVP and carry Omasis's bags over on the main roster. Melo came back saying Waller could jump into the prime costume uh, with Logan Paul. Waller countered that in the costume, he'd be more relevant than Hayes is now. And it ended really hot as well with them screaming and new and then and still jawing at each other as NXT went off the air. And in a really cool piece of like social media continuation, uh, because the Grayson Waller effect is also streamed on Instagram Live simultaneously, they kept that camera going. The insults continued once the TV show ended. They got into a brawl, and you can find that clip online, which I just thought was really cool. NXT uses social media better than any brand or any show in professional wrestling, and credit to them for actually doing that. Now, this was a really hot go-home segment for what should be Waller's last match in NXT. It was the best anyone has fared on the Waller effect show, and that's also a credit to Grayson because he actually let Melo speak without interrupting him like he's done for pretty much everyone else. Now, some of their back and forth fell a little bit flat, but it was hot overall, and we're getting a premium live event main event on television next week. Like I said, I do expect Waller to lose and that to be his final match in NXT. I do believe he'll get selected as part of the WWE draft. Uh, the tag team championship was on the line. Gallus against the Creed Brothers and Dyad in a triple threat. NXT opened with like a video package that was recapping last week, but Vic Joseph cut into it because the chaos began with all these teams brawling on the entrance ramp. That led directly into the match. All the teammates were ringside, the men and the women. Julius Creed hit a perfect moonsault followed by a crazy high effort gut wrench powerbomb. Then he frog flipped out of a body drop. Brutus O'Connor rolled Wolfgang while simultaneously hitting a Northern Light suplex with a bridge. Now, he would have easily gotten like a five count on this pinfall, except the referee stopped the count during the suplex portion, despite the fact that he never lost contact with the O'Connor roll. So the match should have been over here. Uh, the four challengers eliminated Gallus into the steel steps. Dyad hit a double team rolling slam on Brutus, but Julius countered with a double suplex. Ava distracted, allowing Dyad to hit a throat punch only to get confronted by Ivy Nile. But Jagger Reed got pushed off the top rope, knocking Ivy down. The Creed's connected with the Brutus bomb, but Julius ducked out of the ring to check on Ivy. And Gallus took advantage with their flying knee helicopter finisher to Brutus to retain the titles. This was an incredibly hot, like 16 minutes to open NXT, the brawl and the match. I went 3.75 stars in a B plus, And the only fault was really the finish. Julius came across like an absolute moron being seconds away from a title win, only to go and check on Ivy, who not only didn't take any serious punishment, he saw it happen, but she can obviously hold her own. So I just hate when baby faces like look that dumb. It was one thing for Riddle, Matt Riddle on SmackDown last Friday to like have the ability to win the match, but instead he decided to take out the Usos on the ramp because he saw they were coming down and were going to interfere in the match. This, there was no interference coming. It was literally just Ivy being knocked down at, outside and they were ready to win that title. So it's a totally different situation. But I will say again, this did 
kick off NXT with a bang. Uh, Roxanne Perez fought Zoe Stark. Roxy cut a promo on Zoe saying she's weak because she preys on those weaker than her and her character, Roxy's character, will triumph over Zoe's talent. This also started really hot. Stark caught Perez cold on a tope suicida, dropping her face first into the apron. Perez countered a seesaw by jumping onto the middle rope and hitting a flying fez press followed by a tope suicida outside. Stark escaped Pop Rocks, hitting a super kick and a half and a half for a false finish. Roxy then countered Z360 into a rolling pin attempt, then avoided Stark in the corner, jumping onto her back for Pop Rocks and the win. Roxy grabbed the mic after the bell, but Indy Hartwell beat her to the punch. Indy said she'd uphold her promise and give Roxy the first title shot given she never got pinned for the strap and the ladder match never would have happened if she didn't have the anxiety issues. Perez politely accepted. And they were about to shake hands until Tiffany Stratton interrupted, saying Hartwell was a lucky champion dodging her. Indy had enough. She called Tiffany a bimbo and decided to put the title on the line in a triple threat instead. Now, when I tell you, going back to the match, that I made audible noise in the finish of this match, that's no exaggeration. The counter into Pop Rocks was a tremendous finishing sequence over the final minute. The match was freaking awesome. I also went 3.75 stars B plus for this. They could both be on the main roster tomorrow, Zoe and Roxy, no question about it. I wouldn't even blink. Roxy is actually more polished on the mic. Both can completely go in the ring. Neither of them actually does seem ready, but if they were part of the draft, I wouldn't be surprised. The post-match was also strong, but a triple threat of this caliber seems way better suited for Battleground than a TV special. And I wonder if that's because one or more of them is going to get called up in the draft. Now, perhaps Indy got the title win as like a goodbye NXT salvo, like a feather in her cap. And I could definitely see Tiffany getting strapped up and then feuding with Roxy coming out of it leading into Battleground. Or there could be more than one call up. If that's the reason for going triple threat, it's gonna make a lot more sense because this is a really high caliber. Again, this is a premium live event match they're putting on television And I just do believe there will be a title change. And I think it makes a lot of sense for Indy to drop it to Tiffany and get called up, join Candice LeRae, and be part of the Raw roster. Uh, We'll see if it happens, but that is my expectation as of right now. Odyssey Jones made a big babyface entrance with commentary praising him as a fan favorite when suddenly Braun Breaker speared his ass out of nowhere. He called the fans fat rednecks and called Chase U clowns. Duke Hudson came through the crowd with the MVP trophy, demanding Braun keep Andre Chase's name out of his damn mouth. It led to Hudson challenging Breaker for spring breaking. That was a mouthful indeed. Uh, Braun started coming back when Duke cut him off and clarified the match was actually against Andre Chase, not him. Breaker turned into the camera and promised to spear Chase in half. Now, the star of this segment was Duke Hudson, and that should not have been the case. This was easily Duke's best promo full stop since debuting in NXT. And Braun, even though the heel turn is the right move, as of now, it's lacking believability. I don't believe his words. Like I said, it's fresh, he's learning. That's the entire point of developmental and the entire reason why we've been saying for months that he needed to stay in the performance center. But through two heel promos at this point, to me, it's mediocre at best and he has a long way to go. Uh, Cora Jade backstage said she was being nice in her promo, tearing down the women's division last week. Gigi Dolan interrupted, saying it was just anger displacement for Cora, and she was ready to kick her ass later in the show. That led to Dolan versus Jade. Gigi hit a Bronco Buster. JC Jane tried to interfere, but got tackled out of the ring, thrown into the steel steps, and tossed over the announce table into Booker T. 
When Dolan got back in the ring, Jade immediately caught her blind with a pump knee and hit a DDT for the win. Jane la laughed her ass off over the announce table. Then Lyra Valkyria interrupted Jade's promo. Uh, she was surrounded by smoke and she made a challenge for spring breaking. JC in the parking lot said Gigi's life is only going to get more difficult and talked about Dolan leaving her then seven-year-old brother to get abused when she went out on her own. Jane promised that she would make Dolan run away from NXT just like she ran away from her family. Now, the match was probably the weakest part of all of these segments, both the Jade Dolan backstage confrontation and Jane's parking lot promo were strong. The latter, Jane's parking lot promo, man, it was outstanding. That was a good one, yeah. There is no doubt that JC has the gift of gab for sure, and coupled with pretty solid in-ring ability, she has it and an extremely high ceiling. And this is a shocker to me because I always thought that Gigi would be the star of the two, and I do think that Gigi can and will be a star, will be a legitimate main roster women's performer. But JC Jane, what she is showing on the mic, the promo ability, it's top heel level. If the wrestling can kind of level up to that, they got something really special in her. Uh, the North American Championship was on the line. Wes Lee defending against Charlie Dempsey. Drew Gulak caught Lee during his entrance with a shot to the throat that put him behind the eight ball at the bell. Lee quickly hit a tope cannonball sent on and went on a high-flying run before getting grounded as promised by Dempsey. Lee ate a German into a bridge for a closer fall than they probably planned. West caught Gulak with a European uppercut to knock him off the apron and in one motion flipped into the cardiac kick to retain the title. In another banger of a match on a show that was just filled with them, uh, Gulak attacked after the bell. The champion got double teamed with a powerbomb and a hooking German suplex that actually dumped Wes on his head. He was okay. Gulak then held up the title after the bell, calling Wes a flash in the pan. Now, Wesley against Gulak, that's going to be a great match. And this was kind of fun seeing Wes wrestle in a bit of a different style against a really talented dude in Charlie Dempsey. You might think the styles would have clashed here. They didn't. It worked really well together. And I'm excited to see what Gulak can kind of bring out of Wesley when they get to go head to head. That should be exciting coming up soon. Pretty Deadly backstage were proud of standing up to the D'Angelo family last week and how it proved they were more than a couple of just good looking guys. They challenged them to an anything goes match next week at spring break. And then over in their Italian restaurant, the D'Angelo family was fuming about last week's attack, wondering how to take Deadly out. They settled on a trunk match, a solid promo actually to start from Deadly and entertaining stuff from D'Angelo family. Also, a fun, inventive match stipulation for next week. All good in the hood here. Uh, Dijak in the parking lot got angry about an Isla Dragunov question after saying he was ready for the WWE draft if it came for him. Apollo Crews had a problem with his attitude. Dijak suggested that he wanted to show out for the draft, he being Apollo, and that led to a match. So we had Crews against Dijak. There was great action throughout. Uh, Dijak avoided a frog splash, landed on his feet, flipping through a German suplex before booting Apollo. Dijak also avoided a standing moonsault, catching Cruz with a choke on his neck for a sit-down choke bomb and then a false finish. Dijak then caught Cruz attempting to jump into the corner, immediately turning him into Feast Your Eyes for the win. Dijak went to attack further after the bell with Dragunov making the save and booting Dijak out of the ring. Fun, high-quality match. Pretty intense uh, finish. If I've said it once, I've said it a dozen times, the choke bomb is a better finisher than Feast Your Eyes which is just too slow to develop and it's really inconsistent with its execution. And with Cruz losing here, it feels like a return to the main roster through the draft is imminent. I don't exactly know that the main roster needs him. I like Apollo a lot. 
His run in NXT has been mediocre. At best, his promo has improved, which is a huge positive. I'd like to see him back on the main roster. I don't know what he would do over there, but it doesn't feel like him remaining in NXT makes a lot of sense. Josh Briggs went to Kiana James' office asking her to speak to Brooks Jensen since he's been ignoring him. James came off like an asshole. Then Jensen walked in nicely dressed, wearing his hair uh, pulled back and glasses. He still had that awful mustache. Brooks yelled that they're not family and he's not a kid because Kiana treats him like a man. Briggs eventually left all teary-eyed. Later in the bar, Briggs was complaining to Fallon Henley about everything. When Jensen and James walked in saying Briggs was holding them back, that he, Jensen, was the star, and Henley was jealous of their relationship. Then they challenged them to a mixed tag team match, which was quickly accepted. I gotta give Briggs credit because he was able to show real emotion and do some actual acting here, far better than anyone else in this entire storyline. Did that now make it good? No, definitely more interesting than the last couple of weeks, but this turn and the mixed tag team match, it feels like a really rushed development for a long-term storyline that for many weeks was just repetitive, the same thing over and over again. And ultimately, we all know it's gonna end with Jensen coming to his senses and the trio reuniting. So I don't know, it just felt like rushed more than anything else here. And I don't think any of them's getting called up. So, you know, executing it so quickly and not stretching it to battleground, for me, didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Nathan Frazier debuted a single camera show called Hard Hitting Home Truths with Nathan Frazier. It was last week tonight style with him in the John Oliver role. He said NXT is cutthroat and the only way to survive is never slowing down. The good from this was that it showed some charisma and speaking ability. The bad is that it was corny and unfunny. I mean, by direct comparison, it was 100 times better than QTV over an AEW. But just as I said with QTV, it is fine to do a comedy segment like this but it has to be funny. And this was not funny. Also, the name is way too long. I cannot imagine they created a concept list of names to call this segment and that this is the one that they wound up on. It doesn't make any sense. I would give this a four out of 10 with a ceiling of a seven out of 10. It's not gonna get much better than that, but maybe they can get there if they put some comedy in and if it starts making sense. You know, they need to do something with Frazier. You can't just be a, oh, wow, really talented, high-flying guy who's super fast in WWE. They have enough of those in NXT. He needs to separate himself from the pack. I don't know that this is it, but better to try it than not do anything. Noam Dar fought Miles Bourne. Uh, Dar caught Bourne with a knee under the jaw, rolling elbow, and the Nova Roller for the win. It looked like Bourne may have hurt his knee during the match, but until that point, he was impressive athletically. And I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before on the show, but Bourne is deaf from birth and his life story is actually pretty incredible going from amateur wrestling to WWE, something he looks like Randy Orton too. It's gonna be cool to follow his journey. I do suggest uh, Googling his name and reading more about him. Uh, Mr. Stone was finally walking out on Vaughn Wagner backstage last week after Wagner lost to Isla Dragunov in that match. Wagner begged him to stop and finally agreed to open up saying he always wanted to be in WWE and his dad was one of the Beverly brothers. Stone said that's a good start and decided to stay with him. <laughs> and this was just super frustrating. Like it seemed like this was actually going somewhere with Stone moving on, maybe to the main roster, Wagner doing something different. And instead, we're right back in the same pairing, making the stipulation of the match last week completely meaningless. 
even if Vaughn embraces this whole idea of opening up and they try to make him a babyface, how exactly is that going to get him over? I just don't think it's going to. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Block at zero. Axiom in a cartoon promo package said he only sees Axiom, not the man inside when looking in the mirror. He said Scripps thinks that he is Axiom's arch nemesis, but he's not. And Axiom is ready to take care of business. The graphics were more impressive than the promo or the content here. Eddie Thorpe backstage put over his struggle to prepare himself for the NXT challenge. Damon Kep interrupted saying he was impressed while evaluating him last week, which kind of confused Thorpe because he didn't say anything else. It was interesting enough as a confrontation, but Again, really not much to it. Uh, Sol Ruka and Danny Palmer were doing a TikTok when Hank Walker gave Tank Ledger a huge introduction to the Performance Center, excited that he is now officially an NXT superstar. Ledger pumped up Palmer, saying her debut would go just as well, and she was really excited for it in a couple weeks. Even though this was in kayfabe, it was cool to get like a fake behind-the-scenes look at the PC trainees getting the TV push and the way they kind of react to it. I would love if WWE went back and did like a breaking ground series or something similar on Peacock because number one, that was good shit back in the day. Number two, with the NIL program, they're actually taking people who are known from college sports and putting them in the performance center. And the idea of being able to do a semi-reality show about that, I think would be very interesting. And lastly, there was a quick vignette of Obafemi tossing stuff like kegs and furniture all out in the field. He's the third uh, making their TV debut soon, along with Ledger and Palmer. It was kind of a corny vignette, but what really matters is the way the guy looks in the ring and if he can cut a promo, and we'll find that out sooner than later. So that was NXT this week. A lot of good, as you can tell, some really interesting stuff. And I think the card for spring break is exceptionally strong. Both title matches are really strong for the men's and women's NXT championships. And I already kind of discussed with you some people who it seems like are going to get called up to the main roster. Don't be surprised if Cameron Grimes is part of the WWE draft as well. There is a render going around of him. um, The way he looks now, he completely built himself up. And if you want to talk about looking like a WWE superstar, he looks like a WWE superstar. It almost looks like it's an AI-generated image, but it's apparently really him. So Cameron Grimes, uh, Indy Hartwell, Grayson Waller, pretty deadly coming out of spring break and could be another team that loses and and gets called up. Don't be surprised if that happens. And I do think we're going to see a significant number of NXT talents as part of the WWE draft coming up in less than two weeks. So with NXT out of the way, let's move over to AEW. And before we get to what happened across Dynamite and Rampage, there's some big news in the AEW world. And that is that reportedly CM Punk is on his way back to the company. Obviously, he's still recovering from injury. But once he gets that clearance, he is expected to return to AEW. And not only that, AEW is going to be starting a two-hour Saturday night show, likely called Collision which Punk is supposed to front as part of a split roster. Now, there's different reporting on whether that's going to be a hard split, a soft split. doesn't really matter. AEW, in at least some way, is going to split its roster to placate Punk and people who don't want to work with him by having a significant portion of their talent be, I guess you could call it exclusive or more exclusive, to the Saturday show and others be more exclusive to the Wednesday show. So very much doing a Nitro Thunder situation where they're going to seemingly use Punk as the impetus for people to watch the new Saturday night show, which is supposed to be called Collision. 
Uh, they, they being AEW, have booked a June 21st date in Chicago, which seems like it could be a possible return date for CM Punk. Now, that is going to be a Wednesday, which doesn't exactly align with the split that we're talking about, but perhaps that's a show where certain people are not on and Punk is, and he comes back there, and then they do the Saturday show. Who the hell knows? Look, we spent some time on this last episode talking about CM Punk and potentially his return to AEW. And I do hate repeating myself, but this is just mind-boggling business to me. CM Punk is someone who was involved in a situation where coworkers were assaulted. This after he publicly tore apart the company and its executives and completely shit on his boss who was sitting next to him, allowing it to happen, doing nothing the entire time. Punk just two weeks ago made that Instagram post throwing out further insults, even though he quickly deleted it. He cost AEW money. He killed their momentum at a key juncture for the company. Momentum that they're only just starting to reverse. And some would say they still have not reversed it given their ratings. Though, of course, the Wembley show is getting a lot of attention and that should do well for AEW this summer. Now, Tony Khan has a love affair with Punk. He was his number one pick in terms of talent to start a wrestling company with before AEW came into existence, before the elite and way before John Moxley. So there is an inherent bias and tolerance there from Tony. But at some point, you have to be a boss. You have to stand up for yourself and for your company and for your other employees, or in this case, talent. You have to drop your nuts on the table and stop acting like a fan and say, no, I can't bring this guy back. This is not something that would be accepted in any of my non-sports businesses. And even with the Jaguars or Fulham, if an athlete did what Punk did to the franchise and teammates, we would cut or trade this guy as soon as possible. But not only is Khan welcoming Punk back, He's willing to divide his roster both literally and metaphorically. I mean, the roster is already split metaphorically to some degree regarding Punk. And he's going to put that into reality so he can take this asset that he cannot live without, dump him on a Saturday night show. We'll talk about the merits of that in a little bit. And then limit the roster that is willing to be on that program. This is another example of Tony being a really strong matchmaker but not a true leader. Let's not forget, none of this needed to happen in the first place. If he had handled the backstage drama before All Out and not let it fester and grow, then the Brawl Out press conference doesn't happen. Punk relinquishes the title due to injury and returns to tremendous fanfare. But he let it fester and didn't address it. And now he's choosing Punk over guys with whom he started the company. Guys who gave them their brand name. Kudos to him for that sales job, by the way, convincing the elite to let him use elite. And Tony Khan is doing this at a time where the elite don't have any other options. Two or three months ago, it was believable they could wind up in WWE. Now, with Vince McMahon fully back, the Endeavor sale, there is far too much uncertainty for them to make the move. So the elite are stuck. Khan is bringing back the guy he favors over them, and he's splitting the AEW roster, whether a soft or hard split, it's being split, and the locker room will inherently get further divided over it, 
all because he wants back a 44-year-old guy who has gotten injured both times he's been given a world title. The second time, almost burning the company to the ground after the fact. Does he expect Punk to change? Let me tell you something. I'm not near his age yet, but 44-year-olds with a history of this behavior, disrespect, ego, they don't change. Like Randy Orton is an outlier, and those changes occurred in him about four or five years ago when he was still in his late 30s, but there were extenuating circumstances to that. The fact they had a family and was part of a really diverse locker room and remained part of that locker room for such a long time that he learned from his surroundings. I digress. It is absolutely wild to me that Tony is doing this and that he allowed Punk and FTR to put so much out in the public discourse back first when it happened, but even over the last two or three weeks. Dax Harwood has been out here pushing this shit for months and Tony just let it happen. Now, the FTR podcast is going away and we are not gonna have to deal with 100 Dax headlines each week, but let's not get it twisted what happened over the last couple of months. Now, as for the Saturday show, look, Rampage is a piece of shit each week, plain and simple. If they cancel Rampage and go with this show, which seems like it's gonna be called Collision, then I can buy that move. It's a better time slot, an old school wrestling night, all of that. But I don't think they're canceling Rampage, which means AEW will have as many hours of TV as WWE's main roster when it comes to in-ring action. That is an absolutely absurd notion when they cannot even book Rampage well like 19 out of 20 weeks. And I'm not sure like the cause effect of the matter. I assume the show came before Punk's association with it. But Punk is essentially being given his own show here. What happens when he gets hurt again? What happens when there's an incident with that roster, whether minor or major? What happens if Punk decides he's just done with wrestling at whatever point? Also, who is sitting home and watching a regular wrestling TV show on Saturday night? It's one thing for a pay-per-view or a premium live event that you can call appointment viewing, but I'm almost never going to watch this live. It's frequently going to be going head-to-head with major college football, WWE premium live events, UFC pay-per-views, and boxing pay-per-views. That's not even to mention other major sports. Saturday, 8 to 10 p.m., let's say, is far better than Friday at 10, but it's still bad. Let's not forget, by the way, Tony also has Ring of Honor, which now has a weekly streaming show, and Dark and Elevation, which are weekly YouTube shows. I don't even know the length of those. That's like six of seven days each week with wrestling and nine to 10 hours of total in-ring programming. This guy is also running two professional sports teams that frankly are far more important than the wrestling business. What the fuck are we doing here? Like seriously, talk about an overextension. It's also another night of taping and AEW attendance. It's not like it's going through the roof or anything. I mean, it's holding its own. It's doing fine but you're adding another taping day per week and they're doing the house shows. I mean, look, if AEW is like about to get an influx of cash from the TV deals and they're about to raid the WWE roster and get like Mercedes Monet, obviously she's a free agent and Drew McIntyre leaves and they grab Bailey and Becky Lynch and they start signing this person and that person and just throwing money at them. Okay, maybe the star power can lift the product temporarily but the roster is already insanely large. And from the punk move to the TV show to everything, this just sounds like a fucking disaster in the making. And get prepared, by the way, to see a lot of fans who wanted to shun punk and said, screw him, I'm AEW, he screwed them and and all this. 
I don't want him ever returning to wrestling. I don't care about him anymore. They're going to change their tunes and cheer for him real quick. It is times like this when I do the podcast that I wish Chris were here so I could catch my breath before actually moving from this into the wrestling itself. But I do have to move along. I just got to say, folks, I don't see how this works. I don't see how it's a good idea. And like I said, it to me spells disaster. I hope I am wrong. I do not think I'm going to be. So with that, let's move over to Rampage and Dynamite, everything that went down this week. On Rampage, Jungle Boy fought Sean Spears. In the pre-match, Spears clarified he was not there on MJF's behalf because they no longer speak. He just wanted a title match as bad as Jack. Spears had a draping DDT. Jungle Boy came back with a flatliner. Then Jack countered a move into a relatively mediocre like pinning combination and got the win. The match was solid, but really what I was trying to figure out is why couldn't Jungle Boy get a decisive win with his finisher against a guy who has not wrestled on AEW television in six months. Like AEW overprotects so many people. Spears is basically a mid-carder at this point. Let Jack beat his ass clean, especially given that he's going for a number one contendership. So that moved us over to Dynamite, Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, and Darby Allen entered in succession to open the show. Darby said he liked Sammy most of all the pillars, but he's the least qualified as a challenger and Chris Jericho is holding him back. He also said Perry worked the least hard to get there because he was favored by the California click and he's not intimidating. Jack said Darby is a bad role model who people dislike and is using wrestling as a fallback to skateboarding. He said he also respected Sammy the most, but he's also a scumbag piece of shit. Sammy said Darby, like him, will take risks, but that he was a better TNT champion and will become world champion before the other two. And this was certainly one of the AEW Dynamite opening segments in history. It started odd, never got better with these three. Darby turned into a tweener-leaning heel for no good reason. None of the three had any intonation or bass in their voice. The shots were mild at best. And as a viewer, I was waiting and hoping to see someone else come out that would save the segment and pique my interest. And MJF eventually did just that after 13 excruciating minutes. He took a shot at Britt Baker. It's been clear that Adam Cole is being built up to challenge him for the title at All Out or perhaps even later, maybe even be the guy to take the title off MJF. Then MJF announced a Pillars tournament with the winner facing him for the title at Double or Nothing. It's actually a gauntlet, not a tournament, but I digress. He pulled Darby's name out of a hat, giving him a buy in round one. That set up Guevara and Perry in the main event with the winner facing Allen next week. It was a struggle to kind of understand why this was the booking. The trio of challengers, they're all 2-0, and and Double or Nothing is not for another five weeks. I don't exactly see why they could not have stretched this two additional weeks, making each of them like win their way into the final round, which would be a triple threat match for the number one contendership. That's just one example. Another would be to do a mini round robin where they all have to fight each other, and then they wind up going into the triple threat or a you know, singles match, depending what the outcomes are. Now, this is better than MJF's challenger having to jump through hoops, but it retroactively made the last month meaningless. And the opening part of the segment did absolutely nothing to build intensity towards the match. Now, all of that said, of course, the wrestling in both of the matches I expected to be great, but it felt like more time should have been spent on building to the number one contender because now one of these guys is going to have to sell a pay-per-view main event for an entire month across from MJF. Now, MJF interrupted a Sammy interview backstage with an offer, a guaranteed spot in the main event of Double or Nothing, and a blank check if he just lays down. It was very weird the way MJF said this, and I'll explain a little bit in a moment. 
Sammy filled out the check and MJF was floored by the number that he put down, but he accepted it anyway and they hugged. And like I said, this was confusing because as it was presented, I thought the offer was for Sammy to lay down on dynamite. But the actual offer, because he said you can guarantee to get in the main event, but the actual offer was for Guevara to lay down if he wins both matches and winds up in the main event of Double or Nothing. That, of course, makes a lot more sense. That did play out in the show's final match, which was Jungle Boy against Guevara. Sammy hit Spanish flies off the top rope inside and off the apron to the outside. Jungle Boy came back with a flying Canadian destroyer, which, like, holy shit, I didn't even know that was possible as fluid as they did it. Guevara came back with a flying cutter and implant DDT that looked super dangerous. Jack was literally dropped on the top of his head. Taz even winced about it on commentary. Perry countered GTH into a Poison Rana. Sammy came back with a Poison Rana that Jack completely no-sold into a lariat to the back of the head. Guevara then drop-kicked Perry off the middle rope, sending him flying into the corner of the timekeeper's table. At this point, the referee starts counting him out. Gets to like six or seven. Sammy grabs the referee as he was about to say eight. MJF runs in, punches Perry in the head with the dynamite diamond ring. Then he jumps over the barricade. Guevara releases the referee, who doesn't restart his count. He just goes eight, nine, 10 for the count out victory for Sammy. MJF then ran into the ring and celebrated with Sammy, even carrying him on his shoulders. They were hugging, praising each other with bows as Darby watched the entire thing happen from the rafters. Now, this was classic heel shit, and I loved it. Not just the creative aspect, but the execution and the celebration. It was a great way to eliminate Jungle Boy from the title picture without having him lose clean. Fun stuff for a TV main event. Now that said, it kind of makes curious the other creative decision on this show because it's obviously not going to be MJF and Guevara main eventing double or nothing. Now my expectation is Sting stops MJF from interfering next week. That would pay off the confrontation from two weeks ago. And if the title match does wind up being MJF and Darby, why the hell would you have put Darby in a tweener heel role in the opening segment if you need him to be a white meat babyface opposite MJF? As I said earlier, it feels like they kind of had an extended storyline to tell, but gave up on it or changed plans. The semifinal match feels rushed. It's now going to determine a number one contender next Wednesday, again, with five weeks left until the pay-per-view. With so many challengers, this needed time. It was seemingly being given to breathe, but now the oxygen is getting cut off with a lot of time left. We'll have to see how it goes and whether it plays out that way, or perhaps it ultimately makes sense in the end. On Dynamite, the Elite came out to speak with Kenny Omega's hair all dark. His eyebrows also looked really weird. Omega said he wished that he connected on John Moxley with the screwdriver. Then he made a direct challenge to the Blackpool Combat Club. Brian Danielson backstage on the big screen criticized them for having nothing to say as the rest of BCC attacked from behind for a brawl around the ring and into the crowd. The camera work made it look chaotic, but really it was just kind of six dudes punching each other. Wheeler Yuta slammed Matt Jackson in the injured shoulder with his title. Claudio Castagnoli then powerbombed Nick Jackson, and Mox planted Omega with a Death Rider. Danielson then came out calling them all amateurs, though he expected Omega to be a professional. Uh, Don Callis ran down the ramp with a chair, only to see everyone beaten. So he turned around, hightailed it out of there, and ran away almost like a cartoon. It was very funny. Brian then pulled out a screwdriver, and Callis eventually dragged Konosuke Takeshka out for the save. He and Omega teamed up to clear the ring, and Callis raised their arms before raising the arms of all four guys. Interesting that Takeshka is involved here and not Hangman Page. Maybe Callis is trying to like box out Hangman with Takeshka. Omega's promo to start was bland as hell. And this is after I praised his taped promo from last week. The brawl was a bunch of whatever also, but 
The way this played out at the end with Kallus and Takeshka was awesome. Brings further intrigue to the storyline, as well as an unexpected element outside of the actual elite themselves. Definitely curious and interested to see where this all goes. On Dynamite, Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter fought Ruby Soho and Tony Storm. Soraya tried to grab a terrible towel out of the hands of Baker's mom at ringside. Then the heels attacked the faces before the bell. Britt countered Storm Zero into an air raid crash. The faces hit dual ripcord strikes and more for a broken fall. Baker ate a hip attack, then got hit in the head with the weakest title shot I've ever seen from Soraya for an immediate cover and a 2.5 count, appropriate based on the terrible title shot. But having no impact was ridiculous in kayfabe. Hater at this point got thrown into the steel steps. Baker came back with Panama Sunrise and a stomp on Soho. She booted Storm off the apron twice and then got lockjaw for the submission victory, basically beating the heels one on two. This is one of those match bookings that both make sense because Baker's in Pittsburgh and AEW always puts over its stars in their hometown, but it was also ridiculous because Hater was a total non-factor in the victory The heels had the numbers advantage. It was really one on three because Soraya was out there and Britt just mowed through them like she was Bianca Belair taking down damage control. The heels looked weak as hell here. Better booking would have been Hater clearing the deck for Baker to get the win. That way the champion looks strong, but the hometown girl gets the W and gets the pop. Plus, after this squeaky clean win with the faces overcoming cheating, all that seemed to be left is Hater defending her title against one of them. Soraya was the only one not to lose, and her getting a title match, it's just going to feel forced. But that appears to be the direction. The crowd in this moment was hot for Brit, and the action was strong. But from a creative standpoint, I thought it was a big-time head-scratcher. Later in Dynamite, Adam Cole and Chris Jericho had a face-to-face confrontation. Cole talked about idolizing Jericho, so they shook hands. Jericho came back saying, I have zero respect for Cole, who he called an arrogant son of a bitch. Cole called him a jagoff, an insecure, fickle, stupid idiot, then got in his face. Jericho shoved him. Cole attacked. Then Daniel Garcia ran down for the two-on-one. Baker made the save, pulling Jericho off her boyfriend and slapping him. The outcast then came out from underneath the ring to attack Britt. Garcia handcuffed Cole to the bottom rope. Baker was forced to watch while in like a submission type of move. Cole dared Jericho to hit him in the head with the kendo stick that Jericho had grabbed. So Jericho handed it to Soraya, who weakly hit Baker in the back with it 12 times. It was like her swatting a fly. I mean, it was the weakest kendo stick shots I've, I've seen in a long, long time. Jericho and Soraya then hugged as the fans chanted, piece of shit, which I wasn't sure who exactly they were talking about because they said it singular, but that's what they chanted. Cole cried, telling Britt, uh, I'm sorry. And as she was getting beaten during this segment, Baker at one point used his real name, Austin. My primary question, where was Jamie Hayter? Her best friend was getting beaten down by a group and she was nowhere to be found. Now, I presume the explanation could be that she was selling the stair shots from the women's match, but that's quite extreme of a sell for like a run-of-the-mill happening. People get thrown into the stairs all the time. Also, where the hell was Keith Lee? Like, Adam Cole had his back. Keith Lee, F you, Adam Cole, doesn't care. Now, in terms of the rest, I didn't love it. Uh, it felt paint by numbers. Neither Jericho nor Cole had a legitimate reason to dislike each other to this degree. And it came across as like name calling for the sake of name calling. The concept of Baker running out to Cole's aid, that was unique. But Soraya being the primary attacker, you would think she would be attacking Jamie Hayter to set up a title match with her. Instead, she's attacking Baker, who she already fought and that was over. But again, She was so weak when using the weapons, like the kendo stick shots were shockingly bad. Also, Jericho not pulling the trigger on taking out Cole, that's really weak for a heel 
who had his rival handcuffed and prone, ready to just be eliminated. If anything, you do a kendo stick shot like to the neck, you sell it as Cole needs to get checked for concussion symptoms again, and yeah, he's okay and he's able to fight him at double or nothing. This definitely added heat to both feuds, don't get me wrong. And I do like crossover storylines, but I'd say this was more successful for the women than the men. Cole Jericho feels forced, as does the concentration on Cole and Baker due to like all access and them being pushed to the front of AEW once again. This also absolutely killed the crowd for the remainder of the show. On Dynamite, Wardlow backstage said he liked having a horseman at ringside with him in the past, so he reached out to another to help him on Dynamite. With Arn Anderson stepping into the picture, Arn suggested Wardlow consider starting his own group because Tully Blanchard is a great checkers player, but he, Arn, is a great chess player. This pairing for me hit, and my take here was if Wardlow goes on to win the title, this could help legitimize him, putting a group around him, especially if you use the right people. Now, bringing back like FTR and another singles babyface, that would provide some familiarity from the pinnacle and then a new look as long as that fourth person is a big name. But really, there was not a indication that they're actually gonna move forward with the group. For now, it does just seem to be Arn and Wardlow. So we had the TNT title match, Powerhouse Hobbs against Wardlow. This was mostly dominated by Wardlow, hit a swanton bomb and a couple German suplexes. Miss Hancock, I mean, the QTV woman pretending to be her, jumped on the apron as a distraction, allowing QT Marshall to hit the diamond cutter on Wardlow. Hobbs followed with a spine buster for a near fall. QT got in the ring screaming. So Arn got into the ring and pointed his Glock at him, his hand Glock, which had QT running scared up the ramp because he's scared of a finger gun. Then Pentagon was randomly on the ramp for a super kick. QT rolled himself back into the ring and ate a DDT from Arn Anderson. It was like an entire interlude in the middle of the match. And yeah, they prefaced the interlude because they did show video of QT punching Arn like two years ago at some point during the show. I digress. Wardlow then caught Hobbs with three power bombs for the pinfall as he won his third TNT title, ending Hobbs' reign at 40 days. Immediately after that, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus entered to stare down Wardlow from the stage. Now, excuse me if I felt this was an absolute massive disappointment. It started well in theory. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. And then it devolved into a bunch of bullshit. Like consider this booking. They had Wardlow lose the TNT title after three days due to a screw job. So Hobbs could have a one month title reign as part of a bad comedy group with QT Marshall. Then they put the title back on Wardlow, but they surround the finish of this guy being crowned in his hometown with the Arn QT antics and then Christian and Luchasaurus coming out after, completely negating any chance for a huge pop and for this guy to add some momentum. I legitimately do not think this feud or segment could have been booked worse. It was a travesty in terms of giving Wardlow momentum. You can ask me that 10,000 times, Cole, and I'm never gonna have an answer for you. I'll never be able to tell you why they booked this this way. And by the way, the TNT title has now had consecutive reigns of 46, 28, 32, 3, and 40 to 42 days. 12 of the 17 TNT title reigns in history have lasted 46 days or less. This is a true hot potato title, and it's kind of becoming a joke, not only for the short reigns, but because no one is getting elevated by it. The international title with Orange Cassidy, previously with Pac, is 
being treated far better by comparison, particularly now that it's been leveled up thanks to Shazam! Fury of the Gods. On Rampage, Jeff Jarrett, Jay Lethal, Satnam Singh, and Mark Briscoe fought Angelico, Luther, Serpentico, and a jobber. Sanjay Dutt spent time backstage convincing Mark that he really did fit into their group. It was an odd match with Briscoe winning via Froggy Bow. He refused to let the others raise his hand and stormed off. I just can't believe this was put on one of AEW's three hours of weekly television. Zero point zero. On Rampage, FTR came out for an interview saying there was a bunch of speculation about their future. Cash Wheeler failed to mention that it was all manufactured by them with little doubt what would actually happen. And the news was that they re-signed for four more years and would retire at the end of that contract as the greatest tag team of all time. Dax Harwood then tried to paint them as some common men in the middle of a redemption story. He said the next four years were about repaying the fans and professional wrestling. And I'm not really sure what opinion there is to have about that. On Dynamite, FTR was about to be interviewed backstage when footage was shown to them of Briscoe being attacked by that jobber group with Ari Davari and Tony Nese. They ran to the trainer, but Mark said he was ready to fight. The trainer wouldn't clear him. The Jarrett crew and FTR argued about who would fight in Mark's honor, and Briscoe decided that FTR should team with Lethal and Jarrett for the match. I could have sworn this was going down on Dynamite the way that they did this, given Briscoe was not being cleared for Wednesday night, and Rampage is kayfabe on Friday, this week on Saturday, but the match didn't happen on Dynamite. So I'm not sure why Briscoe's clearance was an issue in the immediate period. No further take until this plays out, but if the result ends up being Jarrett and Lethal as the challengers for FTR, especially if it's at double or nothing, there's really no words for how bad of a booking that is with all of the talented tag teams on this roster. On Dynamite, Jay White fought Commander. Spears was in the crowd watching with White distracted by him for some reason. Commander hit his tightrope running springboard twisting moonsault, which was probably the move of the week in wrestling. Spears hilariously held up a 10 for it out of the crowd. Then Commander hit a rope walk shooting star press and springboard Phoenix splashed for near falls. White countered him into a suplex and hit Blade Runner for the win. Juice Robinson then pulled Spears over the barricade for a beatdown with Ricky Starks making the save. This was a fun match, but surprisingly, almost all of it was Commander's offense. I'd have thought for White's in-ring debut since signing full-time, they would have given him a match where his skill would be featured more than his opponent. So the booking was quite surprising, as is him debuting and being presented as a mid-carder alongside Juice when he's a main event level addition. Now, Spears was solid. What I would love is if he's actually duping Starks and winds up joining Bullet Club Gold in AEW. That would be way more notable for him while giving Starks a larger group to go up against. And then also coming out of this, Commander was officially signed by AEW, which again, talented dude, but like, what's he really going to do there that they don't already have? I just, it seems like a signing for the sake of a signing. On Rampage, Jeff Hardy backstage said he's been crawling out of his own personal hell. He needed to have conviction, eye surgery, and a return to AEW to make his comeback complete. Matt Hardy was excited for the match against the firm, saying he and Private Party would finally be free when they win. I thought they said they were already free as a stipulation of the Ethan Page match. And if not, why didn't they just write it into the Ethan Page match? The whole storyline here is totally nonsensical, but the match is gonna take place at the Hardy compound, so we're about to get something cinematic. Maybe that's at least gonna be entertaining. On Rampage, the JAS holes were in the ring trying and failing to rap, even though it was supposed to be bad. It was truly awful. So the acclaimed entered and chose to just attack rather than rhyme themselves. Then they pulled out some scissors and were going to cut off Daddy Magic's nipples 
when he was saved. Like, what the fuck? Uh, next was a challenge for Dynamite, which I could only hope would be the end of this feud. On Dynamite, the Acclaimed and Billy Gunn fought the JAS holes. Apparently, a stipulation was added where the Acclaimed would have to join JAS if they lost. Max Caster was really on point with his rap this week. Cool Hand tried to use a comb as a weapon, but got caught by Gunn, and Acclaimed hit their finishing sequence for a surprisingly fast win, though I was pleased it didn't go any longer, and that this storyline, fingers crossed, is now completely over, at least I hope. On Rampage, the IWGP Tag Team Championships were defended for some reason, Aussie Open against Best Friends. The challengers hugged and hit a doomsday-style knee strike. Commentary mentioned Legion of Doom here. And JR literally said this line, quote, I'm so happy here on this program and in AEW, we can show our respect to those that came before us without any fear of retribution. Give me a freaking break, dude. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. Chuck Taylor ate a pull-up pile driver and the finisher for the title retention. Fine match. I couldn't find a reason to care much about it, though. And lastly on Rampage, Taya Valkyrie fought Emi Sakura. There was definitely some meat slapping in this match. Taya hit a spear and wrote to Valhalla for the win in eight minutes. Jade Cargill unstrapped her heels to fight, but Layla Gray attacked instead, only to immediately eat Rota to Valhalla herself. Then Jade stepped up and they exchanged blows, only to take a brief two-on-one attack, and eat jaded. Taya, of course, was the one to do that. Mostly the same thing, different week. We need Chris Statlander back as soon as possible so this title reign can end and we can get something fresh because this is just killing me on a week-to-week basis. And folks, that was the week in AEW and NXT. Plenty to discuss. As we said, we will be back, of course, next week with your NXT spring break and recap and the results of a Dynamite that's actually not going to be that far from my house. Unfortunately, it's the night before the NFL draft and I'm unable to go. I have work and I need to get some sleep that night. But man, they're coming to Sunrise, Florida, which is the closest local arena that they would actually play. I was really excited to go. Not going to be able to make it. Another try and fail to actually go to an AEW show. Uh, But I am excited to see what they do on that show. And I hope they make me regret not being able to attend, but we will see next Wednesday. Nevertheless, tons coming, same bat time, same bat channel next week on our upcoming NXT and AEW show. Between now and then, of course, we will be back on Tuesday with our latest WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On that show next Tuesday, we will have a WWE mock draft, as well as, of course, recap everything that goes down across SmackDown and Raw. On the way out, the reminders as usual, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Don't forget, you can support the show and become an official member, a Getting Overhead, if you will, by going to buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and choosing the membership option, exclusive audio, news posts, and plenty more all over there. You can also find the link in our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. And one final reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review, and if you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Thank you all for listening. Once again, I hope everyone has a beautiful weekend. We will see you back here on Tuesday. At this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.